0: Hello and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just finding us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There, you're able to participate in the conversation by signing up to be a producer, meaning you get to ask the questions uh, that drive the direction of our show. We have a fantastic show today. Um, Typically, our second hour will focus on a particular topic. Saturday is our education hour, so we look forward to our second part of our hour to go into that topic also today we also have a way in which you can volunteer a special volunteer orientation meeting about a couple hours after the show so check out the email or discord if you'd like to volunteer more or help support office hours but with that we're going to get into our show tj what do we have
1: thank you josh Uh, up first today we have tony mobley from newman georgia tony says I have a serious storage issue with house of worship content, no budget. I was thinking of moving storage to SD cards. What is the panel's recommendation? DJ? So Tony, I would say rather than moving your storage to SD cards, I would look into uh, using just plain old hard drives uh, for your long-term storage. They're, Comparatively inexpensive, a uh, way less expensive for the amount of storage you get per dollar. You can pick up what's called an external, um, like an external dual bay hard drive enclosure, and it's kind of like think of it like a toaster for your hard drives. You can just like plug them in. Uh, some of them are hot swappable, um, and you just you just plug the hard drive in, and then your Mac will see it, and then um, you can just offload your. Uh, Long term storage onto that, and then you know, label the hard drive as you need it so that you know, as you collect them and have them floating around your house, you know, okay, oh, this one is you know, house of worship this year, this one is house of worship this year, and then um, you don't have to worry about it. And you know, it gives you an opportunity to make two copies, keep one locally, you know, give one to a friend somewhere else, and I think you'll be good, Courtney.
2: Yep. I concur. It's, uh, portable hard drives are available for about, uh, you can get a five terabyte for a hundred bucks, uh, in a USB connector. And so that'll give you five terabytes of storage. I don't know how much your storage needs are. I mean, if you're in the, you know, hundred terabyte range, you know, you definitely ought to stay with spinning drives because they will be the cheapest per terabyte, you know, per gigabyte storage out there. Micro SD cards are going up in, in storage. You can get a, Micro SD card, the size of your fingernail, it'll store up to 2 terabytes now. Uh, but they get kind of pricey. They're a couple of hundred bucks uh, once you cross the uh, 1 terabyte uh, or even the 500 uh, gigabyte range. They start to get a little pricey, and it's much cheaper to use the spinning drives.
0: Jeffrey?
3: And I find that SD cards are not, not long-term storage. I mean, you can use them as long-term storage, but I always find that... Uh, they're always switching around, and and then you leave one on the table, and then you forget about it. And especially with those micro SD cards, if it falls down from the table into the carpet, the vacuum cleaner just picked it up, you've lost it. It's gone. So uh, the hard drives, uh, SSD drives especially, uh, and hard drives, you can definitely get. You can also get used, refurbished, uh, but uh, get it from a reputable seller, and then make sure that you've done a a, a your own wipe. Off of the hard drive, just to make absolutely sure. You can also download that Black Magic app uh, to make sure that it's spinning at the uh, at the right uh, or sending writing and and reading at the same speeds that it's supposed to be re- writing and reading at. DJ,
1: uh, yeah, Jeffrey really hit on the the point there. Um, it's much less or diff- er, It's it's harder to lose one of these than it is to lose an sd card um i've dropped sd cards and they've fallen under the desk and have disappeared for months um and there's not a lot under my desk yet they just seem to find the the uh the little crack that's somewhere and it just it disappears in there and you're never going to find it again
0: i suppose it depends on your def- definition of lose uh, as far as whether you lose the storage device or whether you lose the storage itself um Tony, I'm going to go a different route for you. Um, If you don't have enough storage, then I guess that means that you've run out. And if you've run out, that means that you've tried to store more things than you have capacity for. So what you might do, uh, basically this is the the age old, um, what do you have more of, time or money? Um, So if you have money, uh, then you can buy more storage. If you have more time than money, then you can go through and be a little more... uh, uh, frugal about what's our type of content that you wish to save, which requires a bit of work to be able to uh, sort that out. It's kind of the thing where I didn't have time to write you a short story. So I wrote you a long story, right? So it's in order to curate the content and figure out what's more important, that does take time. So if budget is the higher, uh, a uh, higher priority for you than your time, then I would go through and make sure that you had what you needed saved up and, um, use others, uh, be more just, dis- dis- just a word that I keep mentioning, discriminating as to what you save that might be able to help you, uh, uh, use the storage you have, uh, more usefully. And Dr. Clark, do you have something to add?
4: It's not so much an addition, but an endorsement of what you just said, Jeff, Josh. Um, Tony, I'd like you to ask yourself a a terrifying question, which is, do you really need to save anything, let alone everything? How likely is it that the content, the recordings of uh, House of Worship services are actually going to be useful in the future or uh, sought out, replayed, and, um, worth the, uh, gymnastics that you're going through in deciding how to save everything. Should be between you and your confessor, this conversation.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. I'll, I'll even chime in another, uh, iteration of that. Again, the time, uh, entry that you'd want to put into that. What you might do is if you say, oh, you know, there are some little gems in these conversations that I do want to say, well, guess what? That means you've got to take the time, find them and reencode them to where you just save the highlight portions, which, again, will take time. If you don't have the budget to be able to just save everything. Um, Tony.
5: Thank you. Thank you all for your comments. And thank you particularly, Dr. Clark, for your last comment. Um, what's particular? peculiarly interesting about this is that uh, the senior pastor is 93 years old. And part of the reason why I save everything is because every now and then she'll come in with us with a word or a song. And I I definitely want to try to capture those moments. um, Because we don't know how long we're going to have those. And so um, but thank you all,
1: I, I will consider everything that's been shared.
0: All right, let's go to our next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael is up next. Apple plans to remove Keynote's Keynote Live presentation sharing feature in a future release. Has anyone ever used it? Will you miss it?
6: John. I imagine someone somewhere use it sometime, but not me. I've also not used PowerPoint's version of that same feature. From my perspective, I much prefer Apple to spend those engineering resources making something better than trying to replicate the same functions twice, once in FaceTime and then once in Keynote. So I think it's a good thing that they're choosing to identify where that feature best fits and make sure that sharing of Keynotes is done where it best fits.
0: And John... uh Maybe an explanation for some of us that are at a loss as to what that feature actually
6: provides. It was basically a way that you could follow along someone else's keynote presentation, um, either through the keynote app or through a website. And so it, if you had like a cell phone in your pocket, someone could be presenting a keynote, you could log in to their presentation and watch them progress through the presentation live. Um, with screen sharing features in Zoom in particular, and then also you could just email attachments of slide decks. There's really no need for it, uh, as far as I can tell. Okay, thanks for that. Let's go to our
0: next question.
1: Guy Cochran from Seattle, Washington, says, "If Blackmagic came out with an NDI, SRT, SDI, HDMI switcher, would it look something like this?" And has a link. John,
7: it's an interesting piece. It's I'm I'm reading the PDF. It's it's got uh, SDI and HDMI, and it supports NDI. It's 1080p. And it's funny because the PDF, like Josh and I were talking earlier about, it says actual size. I have a map of the United States actual size, which says one mile equals one mile. And my guess is this thing's
0: probably two grand plus and it's too expensive. That's fantastic. Yes, I uh um was able to check out the picture of it. Looks pretty compelling and it has
3: a T bar. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Always got to have the T bar to it, right? Um, so the first thing that I would, would uh, be concerned about. I love the fact that the keys will change colors more than just red green, so you can really just kind of get an idea uh, and and set up something for yourself. And I'm assuming that's all programmable. Uh, I like that Panasonic Panasonic has an, an API, and I'm really hoping that they'll apply the API to this, so we'll have a mix effect or a Stream Deck option for the for this. Um the NDI you have to pay for, it doesn't come with the uh, the unit itself. And then, of course, you can choose HX or uh, full NDI from there. Uh, the, fact, uh, the fact that it does SRT out is a bonus. I think it's STRT out, not SRT in. Uh, the audio is the biggest question. All they're saying in their specifications is an RCA out to uh, a 3.5 millimeter trs and a rca times two so a left right uh input so you have a headphones and you have well actually you have a yeah just a regular trs so it's headphones out and then rca in but we just don't know what the uh, preamps are going to be inside there or anything like that and then uh the, once again yeah the price is going to be the big question but it's an all-in-one and i think if the price is right then i will uh i will definitely uh, look at it and make a purchase. Courtney?
2: Well, you know, Blackmagic did make a unit like this, the television studio, which I have one of. You can get them for $300 now. It has both SDI and HDMI in, and you can use a, some software to control it. So, uh, you know, full software control over that. And it has um, Ethernet. For software control. It does not have NDI, but you could outboard that for an additional couple hundred bucks since you got to buy it separately. And it's one-tenth the cost of that Panasonic problem.
0: You make a compelling argument, Courtney. Let's go to our next question.
1: Up next is Tony Mobley from Newman, Georgia. I'm having issues with my M1 Mac Mini since today is April 1st. What is the best way to do a spring cleaning for my primary
3: machine? Jeffrey. Uh, The biggest thing, a lot of people will say just reload the machine, but I'm, you know, Apple's been doing this whole thing. If you reload the machine from your uh, your username and password, it starts to reload the same programs. And I think that's where a lot of the problems lie. And I'll give you a good example, Adobe Premiere Pro, ever since they bought Frame.io, they have this feature now that if you're using things like Rush or the uh, or anything off the uh, iPad, then it will start to transfer that stuff and and those cache files down to the uh, to the computer, so it's easier for you to do the editing, of course. But it can also fill up your hard drive really quick. So check. I would check on the applications that you have on there. Um, my Mac is meant for only one to two things, but so there's only, there's not that many apps on there. Uh, but if I was to change it out, yeah, I'd probably uh, delete all the apps, clean the cache, and then uh, with a, something like a clean my Mac or something like that, and then put in the new app and go from there. So uh, that's what I would do. Courtney? Yeah, and since it is April
2: 1st, I think what you should do is just take the final step and blow it all away and just install Windows uh, for uh, on it and get rid of all that closed wall garden stuff. April Fool's.
7: Yeah.
0: Go ahead, Dave.
8: Well, as a contractor for most of my life, I've had other people's stuff on my computer and I had to protect it. And I got into the habit of every week I would do a little cleanup. I'd take things off. I'd archive some email, I'd do some shifting of finished products versus ones in development, and I just keep uh, a rotation going. Now, I have three external drives for different things that I'm keeping. A family stuff is on one, business stuff on another, and the other is a permanent archive. As described earlier with hard drives, uh, I have a huge capacity hard drive on which I just push things when I'm finished in case I need to bring it back. But on the regular machine that I have, and I use it for almost everything, uh, personal use as bu- as well as business, I got into the habit years, maybe decades ago, of doing a routine check, a complete sort of overlook of everything that I have and move things in and out. And yes, I use a lot of USB sticks for storage uh, because I need to offload something or share it with other machines or people. But that's the sort of routine that I got into. And it's about every week that I do a whole sort of look at what I've got on my machine and what needs to be there. Uh, It goes along a little bit with your capacity of your machine and how much you're going to expect to be using in the next week. Uh, When you're a video editor, you kind of want to work mostly on your machine because it's the fastest access, but then you're also shuffling things in and out. And so if you're going to save anything, keep anything, or things are still pending, then they stay on my machine. But once the project's over, I clear it all out and I go through it. And actually just this last week, I was going through a consolidation process where uh, I work with a nonprofit organization and we're obligated to keep all the stuff on their service, not on my machine. So every week I push a few more things off my machine to them and uh, it keeps me up to date. And it also keeps my machine in top working order. Uh, I check the updates and I make sure that all my apps are updated that time and I make sure that all my systems are ready to go. And if I have pending updates that my apps are telling me I, we've got a new version, I push it off to that day when I'm going to be consolidating stuff and rearranging all my storage. So um, in some sense, yeah, if you're keeping your M on Mac up to date and keeping uh, a look at what the uh, functions are that you're using, uh, generally you can catch these things before they, they become a problem
0: tj
1: if you are installing software and then want to uninstall the software uh, you know people say well you just delete the app out of the uh, app folder yes but a lot of applications will add other folders and other files and it'll kind of leave all those things hanging around i use a program called app zapper been using it for like 15 years now and you basically drag your file from the application folder into that, and it will go search out all the other files that are floating around on your hard drive that are associated with that particular application. And then when you zap the app, um, it'll clean up all those uh, extracurricular files and whatnot. And then Mickey Makachar in the chat had a great suggestion that um, I do periodically. uh, If you have, um, take your computer disconnect it from everything, take it outside, and blow it out, use some compressed air and get the dust out of there. That will help um, just you know, help it stay cooler and last longer.
0: All right, let's go to our next question.
1: From Adrian Albach, do speaker cones wear out? And if so, what is the life expectancy across a range of high-performance brands?
0: Courtney. Well,
2: it depends. Uh, older speakers, much older speakers, uh, had paper cones on them. Uh, Some newer ones do, uh, the cheaper ones do. Uh, These days they've moved to a polymer-type cone, which lasts a long time, and a uh, a rubber-type suspension or silicone-type suspension for that cone. So that usually uh, will last a long time unless you get them wet, something like that. There are services that can recone speakers, so just search. Use Google to search your neighborhood for speaker rebuilding. Companies that rebuild speakers and they will recone them. Uh, the other problem that you can run into if you hit too much wattage into that speaker, you can actually fry the coils on the back of the speaker, and that requires uh, more major repair work. But yeah, you can get that all done, and the, most speaker manufacturers will recone them for you. But I would say that I've got speakers here that are 50 years old and still working fine. So as long as you keep them out of the elements and they have paper cones in them. As long as you keep them out of the elements, don't have cats uh, who like to uh, uh, mark their territory on your speakers, uh, you should be okay for, you
1: know, at least half a century. TJ? Um, I had a cat that did that, yes. Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately... like Courtney said, that the, the cones don't tend to wear out. It's the, the foam or the rubber around the edge of the speaker cone that I find that will, because it's a mechanical device, and that movement of the, the, the speaker cone moving in and out um, causes the foam around the edge of the speaker or the rubber to flex a lot. And depending on how much usage, um, that's where you can start to get some wearing out and Like Courtney said, there are places that will, you know, re-foam your speakers for you. I would never try that myself. Dave?
8: Yeah, I go with both of those guys, and I've had the same thing. I've got uh, 50-year-old speakers. Uh, I've had to replace the uh, bass cones uh, twice now, and it is the same thing. It's the deterioration of the materials. And unfortunately, I live in a place that's very low humidity, And so the uh, moisture that would normally keep things flexible is missing. And the speaker cabinet itself can actually uh, crack and the the wood can become brittle. So those are the things you have to watch out for with any mechanical process. But yeah, um, they do wear out. Uh, They should last a very long time. But in some environments and circumstances, uh, a lot of things can happen to the mechanism. Um, Yeah, those two that I have had replaced, they still sound great. And I, I think it's more a case of my love for the speaker and its sound. Uh, I'll Make sure that I always get the replacement cones whenever they wear out.
0: Wonderful contributions. Also, Mickey in our chat notes that um, it does depend on how you drive them. If you take care of them and not overdrive your speakers, they should last for a long time. Let's go to our next question. From Annie
1: Korkendorfer in Viera, Florida. A new version of Zoom ISO was released yesterday. Any notable updates? Jeffrey, did you get a chance to check it out?
3: Oh yeah, there's a there's a couple of uh, new notable, uh, very important ones. Uh, first of all, they upgraded the Zoom Meeting SDK to version five point one four point zero, so it's it's closer to uh, to Zoom. So it they can be used hand in hand without any problem. The other thing is uh the the biggest problem that I always had with uh, zoom ISO was every time I tried to log in with the new the new version, every time I tried to log in, it would not remember username password. Now it will switch over to the default, <clears throat> excuse me, the default uh browser. And so you can store in your username and password from there. And then uh you'll be able to log in a lot easier into your Zoom ISO, which is great. They've also added some OSC commands, uh, and of course, OSC also got an update as well uh, with a lot of stuff, but uh, Zoom ISO is where I normally play. Uh, but yeah, they added a whole bunch of new commands uh, from uh, OSC and a couple other things. Uh, NDI NDI has been at 5.5 since 2.0.4, so nothing's changed there. Other than that, uh, I think that's the big ones.
0: Fantastic. And typically, there's a stability update as well. So it sounds like it's something we should check out. Let's go to our next question. From Paul Walhus
1: in Austin, Texas. Zoom is expanding its Zoom IQ assistant to give AI-powered summaries and ask further questions when you join a meeting midway. As the meeting ends, the bot posts a summary and does a lot more AI stuff. Comment, please, on Zoom getting AI. John? And the arms race
7: continues. So Microsoft made an announcement that they're adding all these same features into Teams about a month ago or so, three weeks. And so Zoom's trying to catch up and, and, and AI is going everywhere. It's going to be integrated into everything. It, it's been integrated into a lot of stuff in the past, but now with transformers, uh, and these large language models and, and the hardware finally catching up hence the explosion of AI, but you're going to see it, you're going to see it integrated everywhere.
0: Exciting times. And our meeting will be exciting as well. Producers, if you um, vote on our questions, making sure that we have the most highest voted questions is the ones that we handle first and do spend the most time on. Feel free to submit your questions as well. Uh, You can go to officehours.global to find out how to do that. And feel free to submit questions for both the first hour and also for our second hour topic. We have a fascinating educational topic here about uh, parents' involvement in education. So feel free to preload those questions now. Let's go to our next question. Yeah, from some guy named TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
1: First, Apple announced the 2023 Worldwide Developers Conference will be an online digital only event. Now E3 has been canceled. What does this say about the future of in-person events considering that NAB is moving forward with an in-person event?
3: Jeffrey, would you like to make some prognostications? Well, the biggest, uh, with E3, um, the, the, they haven't had a show for the last th- uh, two, three years now. And so with that, uh, from what I've read, uh, I think there's a little bit of weird management on there. I, it, the, the biggest problem is everybody's trying to stuff in their conference between now and September. And we're saying, like, for instance, uh, I'm going in two weeks, I'm going to go to Anaheim for Nam National Association music merchants and then i'm going to go straight to nab from there because there is a little bit of overlap and there's a lot of conferences that are doing that so we're talking i think it was june 13th and 14th on the e3 conference so i really think that they just uh trying to reorganize something that they haven't had started uh, b- back up and made it a little bit tougher so they probably just decided okay let's let's ditch this all together and, uh, and, and get to our core beliefs. And then maybe a few years down the road, we'll, uh, we'll start this back up again. As for Apple, they've been very successful with creating their, uh, their events uh, virtually to begin with. And having a whole bunch of people sitting in a, in a theater watching a big screen instead of watching people on stage is something that I wouldn't want to do. But being able to uh, hold on to the, the uh, products that they're talking about that is something that I'd want to do. So that'd be something that's definitely missed, Courtney.
2: Yeah, the city of Los Angeles is going to miss E three. Used to bring in about eighty eight million dollars uh, for that convention, and um, they decided, I think, uh, on E three that post COVID there weren't as many people. Uh, sorry, Josh, you're unmuted. They uh, weren't as many people interested in traveling, even though, uh, COVID is, is, I think LA is now officially no longer in, uh, uh, uh COVID emergency health status or whatever they call it that, that prevents, uh, you know, all the restrictions are now removed in Los Angeles, uh, for meetings. Um, they still decided that the games, there weren't enough games that were in development that were in a state of, uh, ready to show or ready to market. So, uh, they kind of pulled the plug, and even they even pulled the plug on the virtual version of it. So there won't even be a uh, an online version of the E3 event. And I just looked at the um, I looked at the NAB convention floor plan, and I've been going to NAB for years. And uh, last time I went was right before COVID, the twenty nineteen, I think, uh, before they canceled it. And uh, I looked at the floor plan, and it's a, probably about fifty percent of the floor space of the pre-COVID uh, floor plan for NAB. So I don't think even NAB, which is back to a live convention, is going to be, uh, you know, it's just going to be kind of a shadow of its former self. Uh, you won't have near the, the South Hall is not going to be open at all, and that has twice the floor space of the other halls. So, uh, And the, even the new West Hall, which they've moved into, is only about half uh, half full. So it's only taken about half the floor space. So I think... Uh, We'll see how well it goes uh, with NAB for opening up this convention, and I think uh, the LA Convention Center may, may decide to uh, whether or not they're going to continue with that uh, after they see the results of uh, the convention this year.
0: Go ahead, TJ.
1: I wonder um, whether the ability of a company that has a large enough uh, potential customer draw, uh, let's say like Blackmagic or apple or you know microsoft or some you know some of the the fang or whatever they call that that group you know they have their big events and um sort of have enough draw i think to to say hey we're going to have an online event i know Blackmagic does that on occasion they say hey and then you get grant up there doing his demo thing um you know in in their studio that they have and he sort of in a nice controlled environment and gets to do the demo that he likes to do um but they don't have to go anywhere to do that. So the the cost to them, I wonder what the cost, you know, the the ROI and that type of thing, if, okay, you know, we're going to, um, you know, from, from Australia to the US and setting up a booth at NAB and, you know, all the logistics and everything involved there, whether that pans out financially uh, for a lot of companies. The smaller companies, I think, are the ones that would probably end up benefiting most from an in-person event where they don't have that big, sort of built in reach as it were and um, you know so it's like oh you you don't get that opportunity to sort of walk by and go hey that's kind of a neat thing and there's a you know a small company with only a few people working there it's like wow that's some incredibly innovative stuff happening here you know let's let's get that information out i think that's where office hours might be um might have a role in that down the road where you know we can kind of be looking out for the interesting thing and say hey you you know you're interesting come on into office hours we'll kind of you know get you out
6: exposed out to the world perhaps John I think what we're seeing is um, the beginning of the end for in-person events and what it looks like is in-person no longer being the default and for all time up until now because technology wasn't there to make it possible everything worked best in person. And now there are just certain aspects of events that you don't need to be in person for. And really the only reasons to be in person is if you wanna be hands-on with something and actually see touch something you're looking at, like NAB provides. And then the social aspects of events can all be done virtually. And the educational aspects of events can all be done virtually. So Apple's a software product. It doesn't need people in person for them to benefit from the content of their in-person events. Um, The only thing it provided really was the social aspect. So if Apple can provide that and a higher quality of the content virtually, then they should. John.
7: Yeah, so NVIDIA had GTC two weeks ago now. And uh, by the way, they just passed Berkshire Hathaway. They're the sixth largest company on the planet. And 2019, they had 9,000 people show up at their physical conference and this last conference was completely virtual. They had 250,000 people attend. So a little bit of foreshadowing there.
0: Fantastic. Let's go to my next question.
1: From Tony Mobley in Newman, Georgia. Tony says, I'm using a gaming mouse and it seems to be overly sensitive. What is the panel's recommendation for a mouse to use in their setup? TJ? I am a firm believer of a wired mouse, and I have been using a Logitech M500 for
3: five, six years now.
1: Love it. Uh, Won't trade it for anything else.
3: Jeffrey? You will not have to switch out mice to uh, get it to work a little bit better. So what's happening is you have inside of a mouse, you have what's called the DPI Dots per. INCH I believe is, is the acronym, and what that means is how fast you can get from point A to point B. Gamers love to have the high high end, uh, so they can have, uh, you know, well it really depends on how they game, but if you want to have more uh, a, a more accurate uh, move as opposed to a fast move you can change out the DPI by going into the mouse settings and just say, slow down the mouse. So I would try that first before you go buying any other mouse. Uh, But if you do get one, uh, check out some of them uh, that have some great uh, ergonomic features to them, like uh, Contour has a a great ergonomic mouse that you can give a try. Samuel?
1: Yeah, I use the Logitech uh, M185. I have uh, quite a few of them, and uh, that's been working very well for me. Uh, I've been using them the last few years and the battery
0: probably last two years. That looks like a very compact one, Samuel. Samuel, I believe that's the first time you've commented here for our panel. Welcome. Happy to have you. Um, What type of uh, type of things have brought you to office hours?
1: Well, I've been doing live streaming since 2016. And I use VMix and and focus Companion.
0: Fantastic. Well, great to have you. And go ahead, Courtney. Uh, Yeah,
2: if uh, a lot of the gaming mice are like this Logitech uh, mouse, even has a way to uh, switch DPIs on the fly. So it has this little button here that's clicky. And that changes the uh, DPI for the mouse. So it changes the speed of it as you move it, you know, moves further. Further, faster, uh, depending upon the three different—I think it's three or four different settings. When you click it, it cycles through the different settings of the DPIs. So, uh, if it's a gaming mouse, check mouse, check. See if it has a button on it for switching that, uh, and it—or it may be a key combination with a, a click of the mouse wheel or something like that that changes the DPI of the mouse.
0: Tony, what do you think about our recommendations? Thank you all so much. It does
5: actually have a DPI button, Courtney. So thank you. I hadn't seen, I hadn't even noticed it until you
1: just said it. Thank you. Fantastic.
0: Let's go to our next question.
1: From Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Paul says, why will Amazon no longer generate CSV reports of your purchases? The only way to do this is with a
3: third-party browser plugin. Jeffrey. So on March 20th of this year, they actually removed the CSV download option from your reports if you go to your orders page. And uh, it, they did not get rid of it completely. Uh, so I put in a link in Makana that you can go and click and say to get your actual CSV report. It's now going to be a, uh, hey, I need to ask for it, so I'll get a type, uh, type report. I have a feeling that that's so they can uh, uh, get them... Uh, N- miss clicks and and things like that so people just uh clicking on it randomly uh, but uh the other the interesting thing to note it's only in the united states all the other amazons uh if you go to their downloader reports if you're outside the united states you still have a csv report so if it is very very important then uh it'll come back but right now i think they're just testing it because you know they got to figure out how to uh, work on a more skeleton crew since they're keep Losing jobs left and right. Let's go to our next question.
1: From Adrian Albeck from Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. I'm building a 5.1 mix room, but I can't find many 5-channel amps. Most subwoofers are self-powered. Who makes a 5-channel amp these days? Courtney? Well, um, all
2: the consumer amplifiers, the AVRs, Yamaha, Onkyo, uh, check there. But they're, they don't have uh, discrete five inputs to five outputs. They all have five amps in them, and if you look on the back of them, they have uh, um, here, I can bring up one. Here's the back of a Yamaha Uh, It has uh, five amplifiers. You get front, left, right, rear, left, right, and a subwoofer channel. So you do have 5.1, and it does 5.1 Dolby decoding into it, so you could hit it with the encoded Dolby 5.1. But if in your studio you've had five discrete channels that you want five outputs for, I don't think it will accommodate that for you without encoding it to 5.1 first. Uh, of course, there are Genelec or, you know, studio speakers that have uh, self-amplified uh, speakers, uh, which are quite good and quite expensive. And that's how most studios are going these days, to amplified speakers uh, in one package. So uh, that's a solution, or get you a consumer-type AVR from Ankyo or Yamaha, or there's a number of others uh, that will decode the 5.1 and output it to your five speakers.
0: All right, fantastic. Um, Mickey mentions in our chat that uh, there are eight channel amplifiers from the likes of Yama, as uh, Courtney mentioned, and also Crown. And though most two, two channel amps, um, mostly the two channel amps, they run two channels for each monitor. So, um, check out those brands. All right, let's
1: go to our next question from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas says, jeffrey you mentioned clean my mac as a useful maintenance tool would you know of a perpetually licensed alternative after the waves debacle i'm not a fan of subscriptions for software
6: john be super super careful choosing other alternatives i remember there was a clean my mac competitor probably 10 years ago that was just installing spyware on people's computers so it would clean out some stuff and add some extra stuff you didn't want. So um, just be careful. There's one I know called Mac Pilot, which is by Coingo Software, and it's not the same features, but it does automate some of the terminal commands that you can do. So that's potentially something Clean My Mac is also part of the SetApp subscription. I know you said you don't like subscriptions, but at least with SetApp, it's $10 a month and you get several uh, dozens of applications included in that. So that might be worth looking into. Jeffrey. Yeah.
3: And with subscriptions in this case, is uh, Apple's continually updating and changing all the settings and securities uh, for apps. So, what will work today won't, might not work tomorrow on Apple, so a subscription like that is basically so a company like Clean My Mac can actually keep updating the software to keep up with what apple's asking uh, these apps to do in the back end and uh, I think that uh, it's it 's very important and as John said, I remember how many pages you websites you 'd go to. And you you try especially if you're trying to download some other software, and then they'd have this big green button that says "Download Now," and it's not even the software that you were looking for. And and then of course, next thing you know, you have something that you don't want on your machine with malware. And I just don't want to go back to that. I I personally don't have Clean My Mac on my Apple's anymore, uh, or any software like that. I'll just, I'll do some manual cleaning and cache release if I need to.
1: Go ahead, TJ. Yeah, I agree with uh, both John and Jeffrey. You know, whatever software you get, try to make sure it's from a reputable software developer. And unfortunately, uh, D- uh, Douglas, you know, that Pandora's box has been open, and I think eventually every bit of software is going to end up with some sort of subscription down the road. And Dave?
8: Well, uh, way back when Mac OS X first came out, um, it was mostly you know, BSD, Unix-based. And uh, there used to be a lot of crons, things that would run to do maintenance on your system. And a company called Maintain, out of Sweden, uh, created a thing called Mac OS X Cocktail. And it's a compendium of features that you can clean up on your Mac, everything from how your Finder layout is, whether you have hidden files showing or not, any of the parameters for security. And it also does a full clean out of caches, and uh, stored material in your uh, browsers and things that are just detritus uh, that accumulates as you use many of your pieces of software. So it has a automatic weekly scheduled running if you want to do it that way, or you can manually invoke it every time you think you need or need your machines operating a little differently and maybe you want to do a check. Uh, I've been using it for almost 20 years now, and uh, I st- they stay right up to date. They're one of the people who get demo versions of new systems and updates. And they keep up to date with Mac
0: really well. So hopefully some good solutions for you there, Douglas, and for our rest of our producers, don't forget to vote on the questions that we have in the, in the comments and in our chat. Um, no, you want to vote on the questions, what you want to vote on. Um, and feel free also to put in any questions for our educational hour. Later, we have our um, parent involvement uh, topic. So feel free to preload those questions. And um, we also have general educations as well as uh, media and virtual production questions that you can ask here in the first hour. We like to just stick to our second hour topic on the education topics for our second hour. So let's go to our next question.
1: From Tony Mobley in Newman, Georgia. My M1 iPad Pro has 943 gigs free. Should I consider moving content to the iPad? If not, what is the best use of all this free storage? Courtney? Well, the best use for all
2: that free storage on your iPad is to capture video with your iPad and put it in that storage on the iPad. I would not use the iPad for general storage because of the difficulty of getting files on and off the iPad. And... And it's not necessarily accessible to people that don't live in the Apple universe. Uh, I would suggest, you know, if you have a Gmail account, go with, uh, look with Google Drive for, um, you can get a cloud storage. You can get uh, two terabytes for $100 a year. And uh, that uh, Google Drive is then accessible by anybody with any type of of phone or tablet or computer. And it's pretty secure. You can easily... uh, Uh, select a file on it and send out a link to that to anybody and then they will have access to that file without having to worry about uh, file transfer protocols and the uh, limitations on the size of files you can attach to emails and how to get files back and forth between machines. It's pretty uh, seamless. You just drag your files and drop it onto the Google Drive and it uploads it over your internet. So... uh, I'd look at that cloud storage as a possible a possibility and $100 a year for two terabytes. It's very handy.
0: Got it, Tony?
5: Yeah, I was just I was just thinking, you know, it's a terabyte drive and I'm using very little of it. So I was just wanting to create opportunities to maximize the use because it's right, It's just sitting in my setup right
0: now and I'm not doing anything with it.
5: Other than, you know, using it as a separate screen.
0: Sounds like you have a bit of a conundrum. You've got all sorts of space on your iPad and not enough on your storage drive. So I don't know if a uh, uh, reconciliation might help. I have a similar situation. I have a terabyte iPad Pro and um, unlike some of the other um, iPads with headphone jacks, not that I'm better, it has a USB-C port. So a little easier to get things on and off that than any iPhone, really. Not that I'm better. Go ahead, TJ. Um,
1: I also have a, an iPad that has a lot of uh, extra storage, if you will, and I've never used it as a temporary hold bucket. Uh, um, maybe you could do that if you had to, just for briefly, um, you know, migrate a file over there that you need, you know, if you were swapping around, back to your early question about kind of running uh, low on storage space. Um, I think basically... Um, maybe consider you know what are you doing with all those files are you editing them or whatnot maybe look at moving them over to the ipad and doing some editing on the ipad when you're kind of sitting around at the park or something have a little time and do some editing there and then that would allow you to kind of kill two birds with one stone stone so to speak you could use some of that available storage and power on that ipad Um, consolidate down some of the uh, files you have from the House of Worship so, you know, you can trim and whatnot and kind of clean some of that up to help get you some of that storage space back. Go ahead, Dr. Clark. What TJ said was what I was going to say.
4: He said it better.
0: Nice. All right, let's go to our next question.
1: Don Prado in Las Vegas, Nevada says, I've been reviewing Adobe Firefly for a few days now
0: I have a report John can you fill us in
1: this is this
7: is interesting its you know Adobe had to put something out there because they were getting clobbered by stable diffusion Mid Journey. and mid-journey and mid-journey now has 144 million members on Discord and right now there's 1.4 million people online on Discord playing with mid-journey and what's available on now on Firefly is text image and text effects, which are are quite underwhelming. And then they have a whole section called we're exploring these these kind of things, all kinds of different features that will eventually end up in Illustrator and Photoshop. So they're battling from behind and, and because they've chosen to do a copyright version of their model, their model's way smaller than what Mid Journey and Stable Diffusion has. And so this is going to be an interesting battle moving forward.
6: Hmm. Interesting. Go ahead, John. Yeah. In a similar conversation, uh, you can now use Bing, uh, it's bing.com slash create, and you can experiment with the Dolly 2 engine uh, through Bing's service. And they have a really interesting model where you get a certain number of accelerated searches um, per month. I think it's like 20. And it uses them up, and then you can do the slow searches similar to MidJourney. It doesn't cost anything right now. But what's really fascinating is you can earn more credits for those faster searches by using Bing. So it's incentivizing users to switch their uh, web search. And so now I'm, I'm actually in Bing more often than I am in Google when I'm on my work PC so that I can get uh, images generated. That just makes me chuckle. I... <laughs>
0: Yeah, so it is, and it is a compelling offer, but for, for years they'd have the little like bonus points, you know, hey, you're using Bing, and, like gamify things, but now they actually have a, a value add to it. So well done, Microsoft. Uh, Courtney?
2: Yeah, I recently saw a demo of the uh, 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 Bing search in the Edge browser, the Edge integration of uh, the AI tools, and it's quite amazing now it's they've they've built it in they've added a lot of uh, granularity to the search you can say you know just search this web page or search this topic or give me a result based on you know uh, a file and you can point it to a pdf file it can search through that pdf file and summarize things and it can generate also generate images based on all of that stuff too. So it has come a long way. I was going to ask John if he had uh, he could show us a sample of its text to image uh, work on Firefly and how so we could see how it compares to Midjourney. Uh,
7: I I can't show anything. I've done several and they're they're they remind me of Dali early version of Dali from last summer is what they remind me of. Their yeah, faces
2: look very much like a Picasso great. painting.
7: Yeah. Yes three noses.
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah, it seems like we're sort of treading this line, too, between um, how much of the copyright is going to be an issue with this because there's no precedent set. So it seems like the different companies are sort of staking their claim on it and um, there's some apprehension in some, but at the same time, every company feels like if they don't at least get something out, um, they're going to be passed up. So it's an interesting situation. I guess we'll have to wait and see how how the complexities of these uh, happen, but it's a strange new world. Let's go to our next question.
1: From Paul Wahus in Austin, Texas. Paul says, what is a generative adversarial network, also known as a GAN? Go ahead, John.
7: I can't believe Paul got this question through. Last time it was there, it had like negative seven on it or something. The haters are not paying attention today. Um, I think this is outside the scope of, of office hours, but it's basically a comparative network. And I have a perfect example of what again is hot dog or not hot dog.
0: All
1: right. Next question. From TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I heard that mid Journey has shut down the free access because the free users were using so many resources the paid users could not get access. Is this true? How do we get to see if we want to pay for these tools?
3: Jeffrey. So it looks like the Washington Post reported something where uh, Mid-Journey was getting abused and, and of course a lot of fake news was coming out of it. So that's one of the reasons why Mid-Journey decided to uh, shut down the free uh, service. So you gotta, you gotta thank all the people that decided to use this for their own gain instead of thinking of the greater good. Um, to use, I don't know, I mean there's enough examples out there of Mid-Journey art that in a lot of places like their Discord, like their, uh, like the Facebook groups, the Reddit groups, all that, where you're gonna see tons of, of examples. And uh, so, yeah, and I'm guessing that you'll be able to at least pay for the month and then get out of it if you don't want to uh, pay for it. But uh, that's the reason why that they've decided to shut down, at least for now, the free, the free side of Midjourney. TJ.
1: Yeah, I had read a Forbes article that mentioned um, that the, uh, the people were using bots to try to sign up for free accounts to generate images to, so they'd get their free, you know, you get like half a dozen or a dozen free images uh, for any new account. And um, so the, the CEO uh, commented that people were using some sort of trick that they had learned to sign up for free accounts rapidly and and grind through a lot of images and it was causing issues for the uh, paid users so that that's what i read on the forbes article
2: courtney yeah there's always problems with gaming the system if there's something that is worth something people will figure out how to game it and if you're looking for some place uh to see what the quality of of midjourney can do there's their community showcase which is just a fabulous collection and it changes daily of uh a lot of the images that people are creating. And as you hover your mouse over each one, it shows you part of or most of what the prompt was that was used to create that image. So um, just let, just do a Google search for a mid-journey showcase, and you can sort it by most recent or most popular or most uh, so on.
1: And, and it's quite a selection
2: of amazing pictures.
0: TJ, something to add?
1: Yeah, just speaking of mid-journey here, um, I've noticed with the new version 5 that the results I was getting before um, with particular prompts would give me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking for a more artistic thing when I'm doing stuff in mid-journey and um, getting more like photo type stuff as opposed to the artistic thing. I'm just um, curious if anybody else had seen anything
0: like that. John?
7: Yeah, you have to be more uh explicit on your prompts and and that's what David Holtz the CEO was was articulating in the in the launch was more articulated better on on version 5 um so if you if if anybody wants to have access to mid-journey and play around with it just send me uh a message in Discord and I've got it, the bot set up in in our garage Rocketeer site mid-journey channel inside of there and you can go to town and play with mid-journey
0: all right, let's go to our next question.
1: From Bob Sturdevant from San Antonio, Texas. In the celebration of April Fool's Day, what are some of the pranks that have happened on studio sets or done with the use of technology? Samuel? Well, I just saw this week that there was a Dutch website that played a prank that they made a, a Sony camera for left handers. A- A7L5 instead of the A7R5
0: oh man that was a prank mm. Dr. Clark
4: 10 years ago back in the days of um, early iPhones um, my grandson who lived with us it was, he was probably 10 years old or 11 years old at the time um, overnight uh, changed the language in each of our iPhones while we were sleeping. And when I got up on April 1st, my uh, interface was in Chinese, and my wife's was in Japanese. And and of course we had to uh, figure out how to use settings, which was also in Russian or Chinese or Japanese in order to reset the language to English.
0: Tales of Woe. Study that settings menu right now. Next. Uh, go ahead, Dave.
8: Yeah, back in the late 80s, um, I worked in uh, community access television, and we had a morning show called Coffee Break on Friday mornings. It was live, and um, we had a tech, uh senior tech in the company who was really into April Fool's, and every year he would come up with a very complicated but amusing effect, and we all came to the office one morning to find everything was upside down. That is, all of the signals out of our cameras and that were upside down. Uh, the other one was uh, doing a, uh, a fake interactive television demonstration. And we got our host to get involved with this, where we gave him uh, five or six addresses to read out. And the cable company was testing the system. And uh, we were going to show you some of the test results. And we had shot beforehand. Uh, put a camera down low in a living room and have people just walk around or play with their dog or read the newspaper or something. And we had five or six of these clips ready to play out. And then he would sit on set and say, well, here at 6258, uh, we're looking at, uh, oh, that looks like a woman who's just, you know, knitting. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, and then after that, we had not warned the cable company that we were going to do this. We just you know do these pranks. And uh, the phones let up. And we got into big trouble because they had to deal with all kinds of people who were suggesting it was outrageous and illegal and everything else that they were in our living room and the and the TV. And some woman actually got in trouble because she put a blanket over her TV and it overheated, and now she her TV was not working. And we created chaos that day. And uh, I uh, well, we all learned our lesson. but those those things used to be mischievous pranks, And now we don't see too many of them because, they're no considered, you know, uh, well, dangerous. John
0: Preto,
7: we were techno nerds, so we did all kinds of fun stuff on April Fools. My 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 favorite one was on Windows, you could take a snapshot of somebody's desktop and create that as a background, and then get rid of everything else. And so when users would come to try to log in, everything was frozen. It was hilarious to see people. Courtney.
2: Yeah, I remember back in the uh, early days of semiconductors that Intel I think it was Intel, put out a uh, April 1st tech uh, update release that they are coming out with a new chip. It was write-only RAM. Uh, so <laughs> you could write to it, but you could never read it back out. So that was And they had a spec sheet and everything for it. But these days, uh, technology is moving so fast. It's hard to put up something that wouldn't be interpreted as true, or it's hard to tell the true stuff from the April Fool's stuff You know these days.
0: I wonder what our AI components would say if you asked it to engineer such a task. Let's go to our next question.
1: Tony Mobley from Newman, Georgia. I'm running the iPhone XS Max with the Shoot App Pro for seven consecutive days for 24 hours.
0: This is a first. What does the panel think? Still looks pretty good to me. So Tony, has it um, run pretty solid for you?
5: Yes, it's it's running great. I think um, this is um, this was really not something I had planned to do. I was just waiting for it to fail, and it hadn't failed, and so that that's a great thing.
0: What's your pipeline, Tony? How are you bringing that into uh, so your production?
5: the the 10S Max is in the back of a teleprompter, and I, it is connected through an Apple adapter. I have a lightning connector connecting the adapter and an HDMI that is going into my ATM Mini Pro. It is in camera one on the ATM Mini Pro. And I'm using the shoot app to, to do it, to control everything.
0: All right. Well, keep us posted, Tony. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our final question for the first hour, Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California. Are there brands that office hours panelists have unshakable loyalty to, or is it always the best product wins? And by the way, we can do a
0: later follow-up after our original questions to see uh, how, how unshakable this is. Go ahead, Jeffrey
3: unshakable no uh but on the same aspect no not on best product either and i'll give you a couple examples here i'm a big fan of sony of cameras and i use a lot of uh, different versions of sony cameras i will also look for cameras that have sony sensors inside because i know what their limitations are buying a best product to win i i don't do i always look at the specs i always look at uh, how it's going to be available, if I'll be able to uh, buy it again in a couple of years, if I need to. I'll always look at the company itself. Uh, a lot of Amazon companies are popping up with uh, the same products. And, and I learned uh, that's basically because a lot of licenses for products uh, are, are, are up. And so what happens is they then just ship everything out. The same cases and the same uh, same looks to other companies, and all of a sudden they start making these clones, which are perfectly legal. But I wouldn't buy, like for instance, a PTZ clone that you see a ton of them on Amazon. I wouldn't buy a PTZ clones simply because of the fact it has SDI and HDMI, and all that other stuff. I want to know what type of sensor it has inside, I wanna know what type of software, I wanna know what type of support I'm gonna get on that. So a lot of times I go to the unshakable loyalty simply because of the fact that I know what they're gonna offer me, but if I find that there's a better product out there, I will definitely give it a, a once over and and if I, I will buy it if, if need be, but it'll, it'll be a little bit harder to do, but it's not impossible. Good, Dave? Eh?
8: Well, on the hardware scale, um, I'm apparently very loyal to Panasonic. I've shot with Panasonic cameras since I started shooting video. So uh, Panasonic on that score. Um, But on the software side, I am a huge fan of and a completely loyal and paid up person. And they don't do subscriptions. So that's another thing. Uh, Omni Software have a, a suite of products that are really really useful and i've used them for as long as omni's been around and should they be subsumed by some other company well then maybe my loyalty would be tested
2: Courtney, uh i'm being a frugal shopper i tend to uh not have very much brand loyalty because i like to look for what works and solves the problem and gets the job done for the best price and remember the b-link uh, b-link by courtney uh, everybody remember that well i've now switched over to using melee so no longer B-link by courtney now melee by courtney <laughs> <laughs> the, the for small mini PCs. So I usually look at what's available, and uh, if it does the job and it's not overpriced, then I'll go for it. Which is why I don't have a. I have a few Apple products out there. I don't use them that much, and I'm not a uh, Apple fanboy because they don't make too much stuff that uh, is uh, uh, economically priced. Let's say.
0: But melee by Courtney doesn't quite roll off the tongue so yeah i don't know i guess they didn't uh, didn't attract your attention well thank you uh our producers and panel for our first hour topic we're moving uh, directly to our second hour education topic just a note before we do that there will be a uh, volunteer orientation meeting a couple hours after our uh, show today so if you'd like to help out are you're interested in finding ways in which you can support office hours and the production and the volunteers behind the scene, check that out in the email and in our Discord. With that, we'll turn things over to Dave to head into our education hour. Thank
8: you, Josh. Today we're looking at the involvement of parents in uh, people's educational lives. Uh, this probably, at first, has an emphasis on school because parents and schools are are interacting all the time. But it also can involve uh, parents as a support for people who are being trained in different uh, uh, sessions and and, uh, sort of environments. So um, I thought I'd break the ice with a couple of stories, and uh, you can think up your own stories as well involving parents and maybe your interactions with them. Um, You join in by raising your hand on the panelist question, and we'll go to those as we go through. Um, my first story comes to me as a—it's a true story. It sounds weird, but it's a true story. It was told to me by my wife, who heard it from directly from the person who had experienced this. And uh, they were discussing, because they both worked in a small college, how helicopter parents are always involved in the choices students are making, and how they, at the beginning of any open house or whatever— Uh, The student is reluctantly drawn around this whole thing to see what kind of options they have at a college. And sometimes they don't even want to go to that college, but the parent, you know, insists. Well, the big story that came out of that was that um, um, a fellow who was working as a heavy equipment operator on a construction site uh, had done something unfortunate, and his supervisor reamed him out about it and gave him what for. And uh, through that natural process of family, the young man who was the heavy equipment operator related this this yelling episode uh, at work to his mother who then uh, showed up at the construction site the next day to talk to the supervisor and be very angry with him that he was treating her son so badly and that he should stop doing this. And the supervisor simply sat in his office with her, listened to her whole complaint, and smiled and nodded and said, okay, well, thank you very much for your input. And she picked up her stuff and left, and uh, he then called the fellow in and fired him. So uh, that was the first parent intervention that resulted in, you've gone a little too far if your mother's coming to the workplace and, and advocating for you. Uh, The next one actually is a little more involved, but it's uh, part of uh, what I learned about uh, the role school administrators play in dealing with parents and as well some some aspects of how teachers have to respond to parents. Uh, I was uh, uh, the video producer for an interactive um, uh, course on principalship. This is uh, training people to move up the line from teacher to becoming principals. And this course was a five week course, but it was an interactive course. So each cubicle had a computer, it had a video playout, and then it had a phone and uh, um, file folders for paperwork. And the course was two and a half hours of intense work at the cubicle with a 30 minute round table uh, with everyone in a circle talking about their experience. And this went for five weeks, one day each, each week. So the programming was to be introduced to choices that principals have to make, and then you get a selection of options. Each sort of challenge is sent to you, and you have four. It's like a multiple choice question. And then you choose one of the outcomes that you like, and then you get to see what would happen if you made that decision because we shot every option. So this is a branching interactive system, it's very complicated script, but it was fun to make. I was also asked to document one of these sessions so that they could have a, a record of how this thing works and I had to show people at workstations and all that stuff. As part of this little interactive environment, there was a telephone. So each workstation had a phone and they had hired grad students to sit in another part of the building and call these workstations and be an angry or upset parent. And they had a script they were following, so that was fine. They also had a stopwatch. And the stopwatch was meant to keep the person on the phone as long as possible. And the job of the student learning to be a principal was to how to deal with someone who was clearly upset or uh, very concerned about something and Uh, get off the phone as quick as they could. They weren't aware this was the objective, but over the five weeks, they did learn expert skills on how to handle phone calls from parents. And this was where, in the circle, people would share that every time I've had to do that, I use this strategy, and they'd share that. And then the next week, when they got a phone call, they were actually a little better handling it. And after five weeks, most of them had developed the skills of handling these phone calls. And it occurred to me that it is a skill that a a teacher has to develop in terms of uh, de-escalation and dealing with people's emotions or hearing their whole story or understanding the student better through their parent and that sort of stuff and it was uh, for me enlightening because i was not yet a parent at this point in my life and i didn't have any kind of experience like that my parents involvement with my schooling and I was one of seven children, so I didn't get a lot of attention. Uh, Anything at school that was a problem was a problem with my dad, and he would have to go down and explain or deal with. But he was a good guy in that regard. He understood teachers had a tough job, and he didn't make their life difficult. He made mine. Um, So I, I guess just as a way of starting this off, just with a couple of anecdotes about how teachers have to interact with parents, I thought maybe uh, once we've started this, uh, we'll hear more about how parents can be better at dealing with teachers and that teachers can maybe be better dealing with parents. Let's start with Chris.
4: I had a comment about uh, parents involved in the education of their children. I, I believe that uh, generally speaking, parents are our most uh, influential teachers or educators. Uh, they're with us from the very beginning and uh, in most cases. And uh, and we remember more about what our mother or father did or failed to do or advised us to do or against more so than I remember uh, similar advice from the hundreds of teachers uh, whose student I've been. But um, so I want to make a distinction in our hour today between uh, parental influence on our edu- on their children's education versus uh, parental cooperation and an engagement with schooling. So that's where two worlds meet: the world of the home and the family are different kind of a system than the world of schooling, and so an awful lot of the challenging stories and episodes and skills required to make that um, relationship between the home and the school um, mutually beneficial or mutually reinforcing uh, involve uh, navigating what amounts to two cultures, and it's tricky, and I'll leave it at that.
8: You know, you remind me that someone in education had taught me that the parents are who um, reinforce what the child is learning in school. If what they're learning in school isn't done at home or isn't advocated for at home, then it doesn't stick as much. But if parents reinforce what's being taught in the school uh, and participate in the process, that it, it sticks better. John?
6: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting topic and it can go a lot of different directions depending on the questions our producers ask. I mean, we can discuss things like the research behind parental involvement or how parents can be involved at in different age groups or how teachers can uh, solicit parent support. My personal experience uh, for from the teacher side is mostly when I was uh, working in a church setting and I led youth ministry, we were constantly recruiting volunteers. And I think one thing I noticed was a lot of parents, especially of adolescents, thought like thought that they they didn't want their kids or their kids didn't want them there and the opposite was true kids really loved when their parents were involved enough to care now they also when they were in the same room as their parents distance themselves but they would always look over to see if mom or dad or whomever was there and and there's a whole lot of complexity behind it um, depending on you know where we end up going with the conversation but looking forward to it
8: yeah in that sense the the um The environment that the school presents for parents to give input can be affected by how the school is administered. Uh, Some schools like it more formal, and other ones love to have you just drop in. Uh, I've only been a parent for one child, so I was able to focus on that. And uh, one of the key moments for me was there was a, a grade three teacher that my son was with, and they were an expert in teaching math. And they were just wonderful at it. But I was in a position to evaluate that that was a really good teacher. Uh, Then I went to a parent-child meeting and came down the hallway to find this teacher in the hallway being shouted at by two people. And the two people were unwilling to come into the classroom and learn about what's going on. They just simply showed up to yell at the teacher about how they're treating their son. And I watched this for a long time, and I thought, no, Dave, don't get involved. Don't step up. Just let it go. And she was doing a really good job of handling them and telling them there's other alternatives and we can, we can talk about this further and help your child. Then they just said, no, we're leaving, and they wandered off. And I thought, well, they had a nice evening. And I went up to the teacher after that, and I just said, you need a hug. Uh, John, you posted in Discord uh, a couple of things. Uh, would you like to talk about uh, the research that you, you discovered there?
6: Yeah. So, I, I did some research. I used a little bit of ChatGPT to, to find some peer-reviewed articles, and the fascinating thing about parental involvement in education is I could not find uh, peer-reviewed articles that were also public to be read hardly at all. Um, so what I did find I put into Discord, and, and the big takeaways that I noticed is we there's lots and lots of evidence that parents who were involved in their child's schooling, those children have better outcomes. And I think that 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 can lead to a whole complexity of issues depending on, you know, not every parent has the same accessibility to support their children in the same ways. Um, But the fact is those parents who demonstrate to their children that they care about school, that the parent cares about the child's school, that's the real amplifier, that relationship between the parent and the teacher that leads to improved outcomes for students. And I was really surprised that the most effective things that they did with the different experiments was parents who just asked their kids about school and talked about school, like that particular behavior between parents and students was the thing that drove the best outcomes, was just having conversations with kids. And uh, I think it's interesting because you should probably have to be a quality conversation. I don't think they measured that, but there's a big difference between saying how, like when my kids come home, how was your day? And they say, fine. that's not really a conversation. That's a yeah, response. that's what you get every time. <laughs> so what i fine. <laughs> what yeah. I've started doing myself is instead of saying, what how was your day? I say, what was something you learned at school today? And yeah. whatever they say based on that, then try to guide that into a conversation. But narrowing the scope of that question from a super open-ended question to a, a little bit more of a probing question helps with yeah. my kids at the age they're at right now uh, because it gives them a little bit of orientation to that. But, yeah, the research shows that... Any sort of parent involvement is typically helpful. And it can be as simple as just having a conversation with your kid about school.
8: I, uh, my father, uh, of seven children around a table at dinner time, had the basic question, and he did it every night. He said, What did you learn today? And we all learned to sort of plan to answer that question that we would have to kind of remember every day, okay, what did I learn today? And before dinner time, you had a chance to sort of prepare yourself because you were going to get asked. And if you didn't really have anything to say, okay, you could be forgiven for that. But even on a Saturday or a Sunday, he would say, what did you learn today? And I would say something like, you know, I learned how to oil the chain on my bike or simple things that I was getting involved in. And um, over time, it became a sort of, pattern and practice. Not all my teenage sisters uh, liked talking about that stuff, but then they're teenagers, right? Uh, but yes, asking and and being involved are two different things. It's it's probably asking the right questions or showing an interest rather than just a casual, well, did you perform well in school today kind of question. Um, I'm going to push to Chris a little bit here. Um but I've got Tony on the on the thing here, so we'll go to Tony first and come back to Chris because I got a question for him.
5: By all means, please go to Doctor Clark. I can I can I I can ask later.
8: Okay, uh, Doctor Clark, you actually had a response to John's uh, posting in Discord uh, about that that research, and and you brought up four things that I thought were really interesting. Charter schools, homeschooling, voucher programs, and online schooling. Did you want to elaborate a little bit on what your thoughts were there?
4: Well, this is a, a little bit dangerous territory uh, in a way because um, many of those movements and uh, possibilities that have opened up uh, a lot more in the last 20 years since the review that uh, John posted was published Um are intrinsically political movements, or they have a political dimension to them. And and I know that we want to uh, minimize uh, going into those political rabbit holes here on education hour and in office hours in general. But um, the general issue is um, that before charter schools and vouchers and so forth, uh, were as uh, common as they have become um, we had basically a public school system and a private school system in the USA and uh, the, the private school system was subdivided into a, a parochial school system run by churches. Uh, most uh, in, in scale the largest system was the Roman Catholic, school system in the large cities, mostly in, in the east of the country, and, um, and very expensive uh, private schools. So it was economically limited. Um, but basically, uh, parents didn't have as many choices or options, uh, alternatives to public schooling. Everybody's taxes went to support the public schools. And and so uh, it was a a challenge to choose a private school where you still pay taxes in support of the public schools and and you're paying tuition uh, in to support your child in a in a private school. So the challenge was, or the tensions had to do with how how I think as a parent, how I think my student is doing or being well served in the school in the public school that they're in. And can I afford to um, leave that system uh, for what I would hope would be a better or, or a different alternative that suited my values um, better. And now it or, or, or work on trying to change the teacher or change the curriculum or... Uh, change the way uh, my advocate for my child, and that that's where it got into uh, a tense relationship with uh, some parents and some teachers or school principals. So uh, the the balance, the tricky balance to strike is between uh, advocacy for your child, your student and um, adv- or confidence in the expertise and the uh, methods of the professional teachers who are teaching your child. So um, that's, that's an ongoing tension. Uh, it will never be resolved completely. Um, mm-hmm. Choice, school choice is one of the possibilities homeschooling is another but as the old saying goes the, the toughest uh, employer you've got is when you're working for yourself so homeschooling turns out to be not so much a solution to all your problems but you and you take responsibility for all of the challenges that we could otherwise take for granted when a whole public well, we school system is system. in our service so so yeah. it's not it's not always the ideal solution. Uh, you bring the, the challenges as well as the advantages right onto your dining room table. Mm-hmm. So that's some of my yeah. thoughts on um, the way the the world has changed a bit in the last 20 years is that there, there are more alternatives, but there's also more uh, complexity uh, that uh, Parents are taking on if they try to take advantage of uh, the uh, multiple alternatives that exist. And then this was highlighted during uh, the COVID uh, lockdown when schools were, face to face schools were closed. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, in a way, everyone was homeschooling without choosing that or without uh, very much preparation. And every teacher was all of a sudden thrown back into their first year of teaching because um, very few were ready to do uh, a decent job of uh, online
1: Or even have the support for uh, it. Yes.
4: education. So, so we had a kind of a natural experiment in how important schools are. And it turned mm-hmm. out that um, schools were more important as childcare centers. For children up through adolescence, than they were as sources of knowledge and academic uh, achievement. Mm. Um, I'll stop there.
8: All right. Well, it's time to hear from Tony.
5: I was really wrestling with whether or not I was going to share this or not. So, um, this is actually kind of a. conviction story for myself in that this is something that I did did to or for my children and uh, I'll let you be the judge of whether or not this was a good thing or not so I'm going to use video pencil to sort of describe the scenario so this is uh the county in which I live Okay, it's a very large county. I live down here in the south of the county. And the thing that I did that I I still have some guilt about is that I bust my sons to a school. How far away was that? It was 60 miles away in the same county. So that's a 30-minute
8: bus ride then?
5: No, it was, probably, it was probably an hour and a half ride for them going wow. to school every day. They mm-hmm. had to get up like almost 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning to get on the bus to ride. And in between is the city of Atlanta. Oh, that explains
8: the time delay. Yes. Okay.
5: Right. So they had (laughs) actually literally had to go through the city of Atlanta to get to 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 the, the school. So, so the choice you
8: were making is, is it based on the quality of the school or the nature of the instruction?
5: It was, it was an issue of the resources that the school up here had. And part of the rationale for doing it was that if you think that I'm, if you think that Tony Mobley is a unique individual or a, a, a good person, I would say that he is just your regular Joe. Who had an opportunity to have exposure to a lot of different things and because of the experiences that he had he is the person that you may see now whether you like him or not he is a product of the exposure sure and so one of one of the things that i think that people have to understand I'm
8: going to get you to just take
5: that writing on your face and erase it there, if you would. There so one of the things that I, I would say is that people have to understand that probably more so than anything else, it's about what you are able to expose your child to. And it always comes back to economics in terms of what you are actually able to do with your resources that's a consideration.
8: if you are in
5: if you're in an economic situation where you are able to provide more resources for your children then consequently you are able to do more things that are outside of the norm Mm -hmm. And I would say to to most of us who are having this conversation that most of us here that having this conversation are in the position that we're going to do as much as we can for our children. I don't think that is the norm for most people. So what I would say is that it's important for us to share the things that we have benefited from being a part of this community, having the conversations that we have had in um, office hours in the education realm, by pushing the envelope to share with as many people, regardless to economic situations, about the things and tools that they can use that are a a valid resource. it is always about the support that our children get outside of what they get in the classroom. Mm -hmm. How much we are able to invest in them Mm -hmm. outside of what they get in the classroom is really what it's all about. And if you are a parent, if you're a single parent and with limited resources, you're not going to be able to invest as much in your child. It's just Mm -hmm. an economic issue. So, I said all that to say that it's important for us to, to think outside of the box in terms of how, and you can tell me whether or not this is even realistic, uh, a realistic point of view or not. How can we help people who may not be in the best economic situation to provide the best support for their children as possible.
8: That's a serious consideration, yes. And I would say that the majority of people want to do the best for their children. And like you're saying, their means to be able to do that are limited by their circumstances. And anything that the society at large can do, and certainly in some countries, even university education is free in order to level the playing field that way. Uh we have a few questions from our producers. We're going to go to those questions for a while, and maybe we'll come back. But, John, what's our first question?
6: Our first question comes from Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington. It seems to be counterproductive to seek parents to participate in their child's education and then label that participation as being a helicopter parent. What is the balance to being partners in learning for today's students?
8: We'll start with Chris today.
4: Well it's a dilemma sky uh, it's not a problem that has a single solution basically the the teacher and the parent need to come to a kind of a mutual understanding about um, what their rel- the respective contributions are going to be to the success of the child as a learner and as a As a participation in the social system of the class or the school, whatever it may be, Um, the the language of helicopter parent um, is pejorative language to to discourage and and describe uh, a parent who um, isn't interested in negotiating a balance with the school or with the teacher as to how, how they will uh, be uh, allowed to or encouraged to support their student or their learner. It's a, a person who is uh, characterized as too pushy and, uh, in a sense, putting a thumb on the scale in favor of their child in competition or in relation to the other students in, in, the, in that child's class. So it's, it's not so much a matter of bringing out the best in all the students. Uh, it's, a, it's a matter of favoring my son or my daughter and in ways that could disadvantage everybody else in the class. So that's, um, nobody wants that label. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to be in a situation where you're trying to defend the many against uh, the pressure to uh, Treat uh, one or some subset of students uh, much more favorably than the others. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's about balance, and that has to be rebalanced every really every week with every interaction. Both mm-hmm. parties involved, usually a teacher and a and a parent, need to um, reassess the balance and and say, are we trying too hard here, or should we? take some factors into account that the teacher may not be aware of from home or that the parent may not be aware of that are going on at the school. So it's, it's more about communication than about
6: remote control.
8: John, your thoughts?
6: Yeah, I think it's really um, sad that it's become such a contentious relationship and adversarial relationship so many times between parents and teachers, um, And I think we're framing, when that happens, we're framing the conversation wrong and we're using the other group to scapegoat each other. And I think it happens on both sides. Um, Teacher saying, you won't believe this parent, I can't believe this parent. And parents saying, you stupid teacher. And I think what we need to both do on, on each side of that equation is find ways to make it easy for the other person to do the right thing. And what I mean by that is teachers, like, Make it easy for parents to have those kinds of conversations and parents volunteer. And I'm not saying volunteer for everything. Do what you can, not what you can't. And not every parent can do the same kind of thing. Um, But what I've experienced as a parent is uh, some teachers more than others talk to us, whether it's sending us an email, letting us know how things are going um, or their responsiveness when we ask questions. They are specific about what they need from us. And when it's easy for me to know what the teacher needs, I try to help as much as I can. A teacher says, I'm running out of Kleenex, I'll go buy you a case of Kleenex. If nothing else, then to just help you in the classroom. But if the teacher sends me a whole bunch of obligations, I don't even know what to pick from. And so I just kind of from analysis paralysis don't do anything at all. So I think it's um, it's a little bit of a, a challenge of almost interface design is making it easy for people to take the next step. And that's, that's, I think, the, the biggest challenge. I,
8: I think Sky's question is really good in terms of establishing the degree to which a parent is not just involved, but trying to control the process. And that's the distinction I make, is if a teacher is doing the best and they're following the curriculum and they have the skills. Obviously, they have their certification and they have the skills. But uh, when it comes to individual children, uh, there are children with special needs. You have to advocate for those. And you have to help the teacher find the resources to support that. So that's a, a role for any parent who has a child of special concern. But not every child is a genius. And some parents believe they're Child is a genius, and you're not treating him properly, and they want to be helicopter. They want to make sure that they're helping with every every aspect of their education. Uh, I I couldn't see the return on investment there, so I never became one. Uh, but uh, I also had a a child who was effective. He was participating in school, and he liked going there. So I didn't need to helicopter him or try and encourage the teacher to pay attention to them. Um, we have another question. Um,
6: John? Our next question comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What about homeschooling? Is this the best way to have total parental involvement?
8: Well, Chris, let's follow up with you.
6: Well, it could
4: be, or it could be uh, the opposite of that. I mean, total parent involvement is, uh, certainly part of what you're signing up for when you decide to, uh, do homeschooling for one or more of your children. Um, initially, uh, it was almost a, a rogue movement, a, part of, a subset of the de-schooling movement that was, came about, the term at least, came about in the 1960s and 70s. Um, now it's, it's become bureaucratized a bit, um, as I understand it in that um, since schooling uh, is mandatory in every, every state in the USA um, up through uh, high school, um, school districts are still engaged in, uh, in certifying or confirming that um, homeschooling a child who is being homeschooled is actually being exposed to the uh, subject matters and the, the level of subject matters appropriate for their uh, grade if they had been in, in school. So uh, parents have to certify, and some in some cases, states require that uh, students who are being homeschooled also take uh, state achievement tests, and so forth. So it's, there's still a, a, a back and forth between the home or the parents as teachers, and the school system. It, it's not the same as your, your child going off to school for six hours a day 180 days a year. But um, And then there are groups of parents who are homeschoolers who get together and communicate and share resources and uh, take turns offering their expertise. So in a sense, there are these loosely created uh, schools outside of school buildings that uh, consist of uh, groups of homeschooling parents who, in a way, uh, become the faculty of uh, something a little bit larger than a one family home school. So mm-hmm. it's it's become many different things. Uh, but certainly the impetus behind it behind the homeschooling movement in all of its forms is that um, the parents or a parent is really the primary educator and uh, guide for
8: their student for their child in our uh, school board and this district here um, we actually have a homeschooling resource center that parents can go to that they have meetings at that provide materials and is the venue for the exams Uh, it's a place where the homeschooling students get to meet each other and uh, that the parents can form a schooling community and have supports so that's a either a progressive thing or a thing that's going on all over the world. I don't know. Uh, Tony?
5: I really was wrestling with this from the standpoint of uh, looking at the question that Roscoe asked from this point of view. And this is a Tony Mobley definition, and so you can use it or or discard it. I think that part part of the way in which we need to look at life in terms of educating our children is that there is, there is training and then there's educating. And I look at training as a way in which you are able to direct your child down a particular path and they will achieve a certain amount of objectives and they will facilitate everything that is required of them. They're able to graduate. They are able to do the things that they need to do. They are trained. And then there is educating. And my perspective on educating is that you do the same things that are in the training mode, but you provide an opportunity for creativity and for the, the child to go beyond those things that are in the box that you are trained and so i believe that the perspective that we should talk about when we're talking about homeschooling is that homeschooling is not a separate compartment from public education that your child is a participant in homeschooling when they come home from their public or private school setting. That homeschooling is something that exists on an ongoing basis, and is not limited to the days of the week. Homeschooling is the family activity on the weekends or, or on Sunday or um, vacation time. Homeschooling is an ongoing thing, and when you are able to provide a homeschooling environment for your child, then you are actually creating a holistic person that is both able to prescribe to do the things that they are required to do and yet at the same time have a certain amount of creativity. Uh, in terms of the question
8: as I read it, it, it sort of brings back, as Sky's question did, the idea of control, that I'm not liking what my my child is getting from the school that they're going to. Uh, I think I can provide them a much richer environment for learning, and all my children will be at home and they'll learn from what I can provide and the and the resources available to me. Uh, in in our district, uh, homeschooling is required to follow the same school curriculum that you're required to teach them the things that that the school board and the school system insists every student be exposed to. So there's no difference in that regard. That the homeschooling is schooling. Uh, you're talking, I think, uh, Tony, about um, enhancing what people are learning and giving them other contexts in which to learn for themselves or learn to be long-time, lifelong learners, and that school is just the way to start things and become socialized. But there are other things outside of what you call training uh, that prepare us for the outside world and give us the skills and knowledge to proceed normally through it. Uh, The reinforcement at home, again, is up to the parent, and the parent has opportunities to expand on the curriculum By bringing non-curriculum things into the fore. So I support you in that regard. But I think Roscoe's question is, uh, the key word that stuck out for me was to have control. And I think that's part of a societal change we're having now. We're less, we're more reluctant, I guess, less uh, comfortable handing our children off to other people and letting them influence our children. So this has risen in, in our society, our Western sort of freedoms, that maybe this is maybe not a good thing all the time. And some people have real good reasons for wanting to have more control. But I think the reluctance to give control to other people is a key thing in the, in the home and the school environment and the uh, participation of parents. John, our next question.
6: Our next question comes from Eric Billings in Washington, D.C., To the panel parents, would you rather your children have their current education or the one that you had?
8: We'll start again with Chris.
4: I don't think it's a tricky question, Eric, because uh, I don't think it's possible to replicate the education I had today. Because the education I had was a product of the culture of the 1950s and 60s. And uh, the culture is very different today and the opportunities are different, the world is different. So, um, I don't think it's a real choice. I don't think I could replicate, it's, a, it's not available to replicate my education uh, with my children or now my grandchildren today. Um, I think, though, that... Um, my wife and I have shared experiences remembered of our educations with our children and and now our grandchildren in ways that um, perhaps integrate some of the, the big ideas that we have taken with us many, many decades later. So in a sense, uh, they're getting the, uh, the Cliff Notes version of our stories of our educations and the turning points that we uh, experienced, some of which were planned and intentional and some of which were seemed like they were accidental or providential, being at the right place at the right time. Sharing those stories with our children and grandchildren have helped them, I think, uh, compare and contrast the experiences that they're having or that they might have in the future with uh, what it was like in the old de- olden days when we were uh, in school. Thank you for that.
8: John
6: Snyder. No, I would not like my kids to have my education. Um, they are both special needs students, and so they are both on IEPs. One has a full-time aide, and if they were just put in the classroom like I was, they would would have failed. I also went to a one of the lowest rated schools and one of the lowest rated counties in the lowest rated state in the United States uh, for many of my years of, um, well, it was basically K through ninth grade. And then I went to one of the highest rated schools uh, my last three years of school in a different country. So different experiences, every student's different and contextually um, they have different needs. And I would much rather have, when I was in school had the cool toys we have now, like computers and stuff. So generally no.
8: I'm going to applaud your resiliency for uh, being through the less quality school and coming out the way you are today. So good. Tony?
5: I I think Dr. Clark is right in that it is a tricky, tricky thing. Uh, I have the benefit of graduating from a high school um, that was a project-based high school. It was a private high school and was project based, and I would want that experience for my children. However, it was not possible. Um, but I, what I will say, that the fact that there are schools that are considering uh, project based learning. I think it, it makes all of the difference um, when you are able to be exposed to, and, and, and quite frankly, the things that I was exposed to, I should not have been exposed to based on my geographic location. And, um, and, I, and I just have to mention that with the project-based education and the sacrifices that my parents made in terms of exposure and not being limited and I'm going to be transparent and say that the majority of people who lived in my community and looked like me did not have the exposure that I had. I was in I was fortunate in that I was in a project-based learning environment exposed to so many wonderful things. And then I was a part of a house of worship tradition that was always taking us to various places throughout the country to have experiences that were way beyond um, that setting. And unfortunately, The majority of people who lived in my community did not leave the community. And so, um, but yes, that's my answer to the question.
8: I I guess my answer to that question would be that uh, my personal experience through school and all the way up to high school, actually, uh, they were constantly experimenting. So every couple of years, things would really radically change how we were taught math Uh, how the school was structured. Uh, We went to a sort of semester system one time, which mystified me. And we had different sort of open classes. Uh, Then there was team teaching. Uh, it, It seemed to me that it was constantly evolving. And I've kind of embraced that, that all things are like that. Even office hours here is constantly evolving. And so The parents can be confused, I think, sometimes when they encounter something the the classroom is doing or the way things are being structured or whether homework is banned or other things like that. And they're finding it's a little confusing and they can't see their opportunity to be involved in the education part of things. And as we're kind of conversing right now, there's some responsibility of parents to support what their kids are getting through the curriculum. We'll take the next question then, John.
6: Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. How can parents balance being involved in their children's lives and education with not overly protecting them as they grow?
8: It, protection is a very interesting thing because we have to look at what the fears are for that protection. And and really, there's two aspects. One, are they getting the services they need? Are are my child supported? Is my child um, engaged with other students? Is there are there? issues of isolation is the person withdrawing so those are the protective things that i would focus on i i wouldn't have much concern about protecting them from other kids Uh, i think the school system actually has a lot of mechanics and and supports for that and um, i i think if you're trying to uh, insulate a child from the world outside then you're you're doing them some harm and i think one of the things that i learned early in my own uh, life, and this is from my father, uh, is failure is learning, where every time you think you can do something and you can't, well, then there's a chance to learn. Or if you thought something was true and it's not, that's a learning opportunity. So it took me many years to, you know, integrate that into my life. But if the child I'm sending to school is not given those kind of guidance and those kind of opportunities to fail, then I'm going to intervene, I think. Yes. John.
6: Yeah, I think this is a bit more of a parenting question than an education question. But just in general, um, how people grow, people grow most when their challenge level is slightly higher than their capability model. And just like when you work out, if you push yourself working out, you'll grow stronger. And if you're lazy, when you work out, you don't grow as strong. That's how people grow at all ages in all forms is you need to challenge them and put them in a place where there's some amount of risk but where if they fail, they won't be devastated, they won't be crushed, um, they w- and that will keep people out of the f- fight-or-flight response, which is a optimal place for growing.
8: I have an additional little anecdote that I was sitting on a bench watching my child play in a playground just on the weekend, and uh, I was sitting with a parent who was complaining about all the apparatus in the playground and how dangerous it was. And a person could fall here or they could trip there, or, and, and I was kind of thinking... You know, we're in a playground so they can learn that those things exist. That the failure in the playground is through repetition to learn how to swing from the swings or ride on the things that that are somewhat dangerous or go down the slide properly and not hurt yourself. Uh, the risks and dangers in life are kind of practiced out in the playground. And uh, this person wanted to cover everything in bubble wrap, and I just was shaking my head quietly that uh, this person doesn't seem to understand what's going on in a playground. The child is learning. All the time and experimenting all the time until they get to formal education. So this process of protection and everything can kind of inhibit a person's sense of exploration. So next question.
6: Roscoe Jones back from Madison, Indiana asks, as a professional educator, what's been the best example of parental support and involvement that you've experienced?
8: Well, as our senior here uh, in education, let's talk, listen from Chris here.
4: Thank you. I had the uh, privilege of being a researcher on teaching. I, I was a professor of educational psychology and a member of the Institute for Research on Teaching at Michigan State University during the time when my children were in the East Lansing school system. And my most memorable set of experiences was working as a fellow researcher with half a dozen teachers ranging from elementary school through middle school and high school in uh, schools where my children uh, were students. So uh, the nice part about it, the memorable part about it was that I was as a parent, but also as a researcher from the university I entered into a partnership with these six teachers, and together we were uh, making sense of their experiences of teaching, particularly in the field of uh, literacy, written literacy. So it wasn't a focus so much on um, students or on my children in particular, but it was the development of a uh, a mutually respectful relationship between myself and a couple of others who were on my research team and these particular teachers each one was making sense of their experience the invisible parts of teaching the planning and decision making and and sense making and repair of what they consider to be uh, false starts uh, in their teaching of writing at different Levels And also getting them together in a group of professionals who would talk with each other about what it's like to be trying to teach uh, writing to second graders versus high school writers and, and middle school aged kids. So that was, you know, I was in uh, multiple roles as an educator and a researcher, but also as a parent uh, getting an inside look. Uh, not only into the schools that my children were enrolled in, but also into the mental lives of the teachers who were, uh, I was very impressed with how how thoughtful and how much uh, wrestling with uh, challenging uh, questions the teachers did, but of course, that's that's usually not available to most parents, it's not even visible to most teachers. But yet, um, it revealed a kind of depth of of professionalism that is otherwise uh, un- underappreciated and underacknowledged.
6: And John? Yeah, for me, the best experience I've always had with parental uh, involvement was those parents who told me clearly and specifically, one, that they wanted to contribute. And they asked, you know, how can I help? They told me... What degree they thought they could help. So they would give me ideas of their skills or resources that they were willing to um, put into the to our program, including things like, um, I had a parent say, "I really want to be involved in my kid's life. I can help you know, two to four hours a week. Here's some of the skills I think I can contribute. And then as we were talking about events or planning events and that sort of thing, she would always ask herself, What for this event can I uniquely contribute to this event? And she would come to me with a a specific idea. Um, And that's really what I needed. And she deferred to me as well um, and my expertise. So it was always a, how can I help you in what you're trying to do? Not um, you're doing this wrong or you need to do this. It was, how can I help? Was the the question she was always asking.
8: Terrific. Uh, We have one more question
6: for the hour. Our last question is from Douglas Carmichael for parents of older children on the autism spectrum or with related needs, how do you help them develop a sense of long-term inner security and self-esteem while still giving them the support that's appropriate for their challenges?
8: Well, start with Tony this time.
5: So I I think that I'm in a unique position in that, um, I taught high school autism Uh, for several years. And also I have family members who are on the spectrum. And one of the things that I think is important is that artistic adults or students have issues primarily with change. So the way in which I look at wrestling with that issue in particular, is that you make their change experience as broad as possible. And my example is that in the case of particularly adults, you provide a broad base of outlets and interactions that can be replicated, but also are broad. By broad, I mean, if they are um, if they are adults that are no longer attending schools, that you provide an outlet for them to be able to either work or have social interactions and let that be as broad a base as possible. When you have a artistic adult who, um, let's say, has an aged parent, like I can speak Um, about my nephew who was primarily a care, the caregiver was my mother-in-law. And it was kind of traumatic for him when my mother-in-law passed. And I had done the best job I could to try to prepare my mother-in-law for her eventual passing by saying to her that it's important for him to have as many outlets and resources as possible so that when she did pass, it would not be as dramatic. uh, An experience for him, and so the, the, the tools that you want to equip adults with or students with is as much independence as possible and certainly as many outlets as possible. Now those outlets, because they don't like change, have to be consistently done. So you're in a position where you are doing a lot of different things all the time, but that, mm-hmm. is, that is what works for them.
8: Thank you, Tommy. In my own experience, and it's not autism so much, as uh, my uh, youngest brother had cerebral palsy and needed supports and helps. There was nothing really wrong with his thinking. It was just his uh, physical disability and uh, some of his difficulties medically uh, that would uh, make going to school difficult for him, and he needed special help. And not all the schools we lived near uh, had uh, those kind of supports. So his experience of education was very frustrating and very difficult, and everyone in the family was, you know, encouraged to support him in anything he wanted to do and try to guide him and protect him and that sort of thing. One of the things we learned from him was we were overprotective, and he wasn't able to express this until midlife. and. He lived to 35, so it was about around his 20s when he finally stood up to the family and said, leave me alone, I'm learning this myself, I'll get my own ideas. And he didn't have the courage to push back on our help until he was uh, old enough to feel confident in himself. And the more we left him alone, the more he blossomed, the more he got involved in things. And he became an advocate for disability and he uh, spoke in uh, the House of Commons with uh, MPs Uh, advocating for better lifestyle supports for people of any disability and was, uh, in our city anyway, one of the team of people who convinced the city to put wheelchair dips on every street corner sidewalk. And his work just blossomed in the last 10 or 15 years of his life because we left him to his own devices. Having given him the support we did during the early years gave him the confidence that he could go out and do it himself. And when he did, and we, you know, championed him, uh, he got much better at it and his life was much happier. Uh, Chris, we'll bring it home with you.
4: Briefly, um, my sense is that uh, older children on the autism spectrum and with uh, similar um, neurodiverse qualities uh, all have a strength and it's different for each person, of course. In fact, all all people, all older children have uh, strong suits, so to speak, what they bring to the table, what they uh, contribute to a community, whether it's a school-based community or um, in the broader community. And I, I think the, the way we can be uh, helpful to their development and to their... Uh, success as a member of a community which they'll be in, in one degree or another for all of their lives is to build on that strength instead of trying to um, turn these people into generalists who are who are good at everything who who don't stand out uh, and so forth. I think um, being in community, can help with that, but of course, um, particular neurodiverse qualities make being successful in those communities uh, more challenging or require more specific support, both from the um, the individuals whom we're trying to help and also from uh, the adults, say teachers and so forth, uh, community leaders who uh, are uh, managing and leading these, these uh, community groups. So, so the idea basically is to uh, be happy with and to uh, support the ways in which these individuals are uh, outstanding, good contributors to the communities that they're members of, and, uh, and not worry so much about the other 99 ways that they might have been outstanding or com- contributors let's uh, build on the strengths and not worry about trying to stamp out or compensate for the the weaknesses
8: thank you and thanks to everyone for uh, both joining us and being on the panel today um i, I think this is probably a discussion that I was a little afraid of when I first sort of signed up to host this. Uh, but I've, I've heard a lot today that I think gives me things to think about. And I want to thank the people who ask questions, the uh, producers asking questions, guide us and expand the show and give us other ways of contributing. Um, and I want to thank the people in the background uh, who operate office hours and make this look as good as it does and make us sound as good as we do. Uh, You can join us next week when we'll open the floor to some brainstorming ideas for future discussions in Education Hour. And I want to remind everyone there's always people in After Hours who can help you with technology questions. And maybe there's a few educators out there lurking around in Office Hours. You can ask them questions, too. Uh, Stick around today uh, after this in just less than two hours from now. There'll be a volunteer orientation session in the after-hours breakout room for that, and you can easily log into Office Hours after-hours and uh, get into that meeting and see if you too want to volunteer and help us both in the back end and, of course, contributing here on a panel. Thanks, everyone, and you all have a great day. Thanks again, everyone. Good conversation. Mm-hmm. I always find it interesting when I'm participating in this, that things I've long ago forgotten get triggered and they come to mind just as someone's saying something or a key word goes by and I go, Oh yeah, right. Yeah. What? That was when I was 18. I, I'd learned, you know, that sort of thing. It really is a sort of. Uh, I think Chris, you were joking with me earlier about exercising the mind and and being involved in things you don't know about, and you know keep the brain learning new things and inputting things. So uh, we also also I want to thank Harshid for being a loyal member of our panel, and uh, being here each week. We really like having you. It's entirely possible he's frozen.
6: So as you say, he's standing super still. <laughs> I don't even
8: see him looking around and he usually does. So, oh, there, there he goes. is. He's <laughs> linking now.
3: <laughs>
8: yeah. A little Wi-Fi issue there for a,
3: moment. Yeah, a little wave, but I was trying to just load up another link. So it, yeah. yeah.